Now we're going to look at women and what the law says about women or about issues that would concern women, like marriage. So women in the Sharia. It is said that every Arab word has some connection to the camel. So Sharia too has a connection. Sharia is the path, the path that leads the camel to water. So the path that to be followed, the path to the water or the water that gives life is Sharia. So the meaning of a path. So it is great meaning, it, a path that will give you arriving at the rivers in the garden of paradise to arrive in the picture of heaven that is given in the Quran. So it's a very important because it's a complete way of life. A little bit about the historical background, the sources. Well, yes, the Quran is the source of the Quran. Of course, the major source, yes. And for some people in their view of the Quran, it's the only source for very ultra-conservative or radical Islamic ideas like the Wahhabi of Saudi Arabia and the Taliban, these various groups would say the Quran in itself is complete. It has all the law that we need, covers every issue. But actually, if you examine quite closely, the Quran only has perhaps five or six hundred verses that you can say are commands that are actually laws saying do this or don't do this. But there are 6,000 verses in the Quran, and all the rest of them are not so clearly law statements. But perhaps in the Middle Eastern view of law, which is about how to live in general statements and not just civil law or criminal law, the Quran can be seen as a book of law to be followed. And Islam, as it expanded and grew in various countries, so ideas about law and the influences changed and grew and developed and other influences affected the law. There are lots of influences from the Jewish law of the Old Testament and that becomes quite obvious at times. Although our Muslim friends don't know what's said in the Old Testament, some of them are aware that the things they believe and do are similar to the things that Jews would say. The purification rites the washing and the idea of body fluids being unclean and making one unclean. And these laws were passed on as a group of oral laws. And food laws, such as not eating pork, also resembles the idea of the Old Testament, not to eat the meat of the pig. But there are lots of Bedouin laws also that seem to have affected the idea of honor and hospitality and raids and revenge and relationships between tribes were Bedouin laws that were orally held between one another and gave society meaning. And now some of these laws are part of Sharia. But even Roman law gives an impact that the world had been under the Roman Empire for a long time and this idea that a system would be complete and cover all areas and that something happened, you had to have burden of proof and the right of self-defense or the right that if you made a statement and oath, that oaths and promises were binding. And so there are lots of influences to which we see that the system of Sharia comprises a number of these other influences beyond verses only from the Quran. But as we were talking 
previously about Hadith. Hadith also is a clarification and text that gives additional ideas for law and for rules that should be followed. But another problem that came into being is that there were things that would happen and they may apply uh, to become laws by consensus. But it was the consensus of the scholars of law, not just the consensus of anyone, but the consensus. Because there is a hadith that said, my community will never be in agreement in error, which gave a principle that sometimes you could decide a law on agreement of such and such should be the interpretation or the explanation through a consensus of the scholars. And over the time, again, opinion began to affect it. There were opinions or analogies, uh, which, gave, which is explained by the word kias in Arabic, but it was a way to make a decision. There were not maybe drugs or the same things in the time of Muhammad, but because certain things that were forbidden that would harm a person on a basis of analogy that something is like the same position as in the Quran, this can be by analogy compared and a law could be made by opinion and kias. But also, over the years, the schools built and opinions and consensus and various things were drawn together to give the jurisprudence and organization of the body of laws that form the Sharia that we know today. Again, we have a, a thought that no, none of these law schools and these opinions seem to exist in the time of Muhammad. And so they came about also in the 8th and 9th century. The first law school was known very much by opinions and so forth was Abu Hanafi, and it was mostly of Central Asia and India. And then another Meccan school formed with Maliki Malik, and his school is followed in North Africa and Upper Egypt. But then another man who was born in Giza, but then went to live in Mecca later and Medina, Shafi'i, his school of law was much more organized and into compartments, and it is probably the most followed of all the law schools and gives sort of a unification to other statements that were previously held. But the most fundamental or very conservative and radical type of law school was Hannibal, and his also resembles the fundamentalist forms that are in Saudi Arabia today. But as well, the Shiites have their own. In the Jaffa'i Law School, which was formed in the 6th century, is a different law school, but there's great resemblance to the other law schools as well. To look at the ones in which marriage and divorce and the issues that affect women. Marriage is expected and celibacy is rejected, not recommended at all. And the surah, it is created that you are for mates and that you would dwell together. And so marriage is the accepted plan in the Sharia. And it is a civil contract or a legal contract between what is supposedly two equal people, although quite often it is not always the man and the woman. It may be the family, father of one family and the father of another family, or the guardian of the woman and the husband. And it is signed by the couple. 
and this arranges the marriage. And if they don't continue to marry or consummate the marriage, then there has to be a divorce because this engagement or this signing of the contract is a legal document that will have to be nullified by divorce. So marriages are a civil contract. There's no concept that we know as Christians of a ceremony that is sacred or of a covenant to, uh, between the couple themselves. Marriage is often arranged, but forced marriage are definitely looked upon as unwelcome by most of the young Muslim community. But arranged marriage by the family is still a very popular form of marriage. Even among Christian people in the Middle East, arranged marriage is not strange or unusual, although we in the West tend to misunderstand how that could be a possibly a good thing. And the marriage would have two witnesses to the contract, and often the only ceremonial part of it will be the saying of the fatiha or the fatah, the first door of the Quran. Together they would sign the papers and sign uh, the covenant, signed the document, but it is not a religious document again. And but there may be the saying of, of verses from the Quran. A woman can keep her father's name on her papers and her identification. There is a saying that a matron should not be given in marriage except after consulting her. And a virgin should be not given in marriage except with her permission. But the apostle of law said, how can we know her permission? Her silence is a permission. Who may she marry? She may not marry the blood relations of her immediate family, nor her half-sister or half-brothers, nor foster brothers or sisters whom her mother had possibly nursed. But first cousins may marry. A Muslim woman can only marry a Muslim man, but a man may marry non-Muslim women. So there is a change in what men are allowed to do, but women would not be allowed to. And if a woman's husband became a Christian in some countries, they have automatically declared her divorce because she's not allowed to be married to a Christian. So sometimes this has been a difficulty for Christian families. And there is usually required the payment of a dowry, and the amounts differ. In some people, their family have asked that they give them a car or give them large sums of money. It varies according to country to country. There's no fixed idea, but there is the idea that you must pay. It gives some sort of security. It was to provide um, money for the woman or things that would be bought for the house or the family in providing for the marriage home. There still is, in many countries, the possibility of temporary marriage <clears throat> or muta marriage. A contemporary marriage, the woman does not have any rights and should not have children. It's a marriage that may be for a fixed time while her husband is away from home or during war or possibly when he went on Hajj, or for some other pacific circumstances. I knew of a couple young men that were married to a woman 
while they were in university, but she is not their wife. She was just their uh, partner while he was a student because he was away from his wife and his family during those years. This is still acceptable in, in the Shiite culture, but most Sunnis would deny that this is a possibility that is still legal. It is also possible with Sharia law that a man may marry two or three or four, but it says if you fear that you cannot deal with them justly, then you should not write marry three or four people. Um, one of the Muslim women who is a historian has commented that this actually is saying, well, everyone knows you can't do it. So it's actually a negative statement, not a positive statement to have a go at trying three or four wives. In Egypt in the early 1900s, it was suggested that these things that are said in the Quran and in the Sharia were things that could be adjusted or changed, but some other parts of the Quran must never be changed. But family and social issues could be modified and revised. But even then, it wasn't acceptable to the majority of the conservative leaders who followed the Quran. Divorce and repudiation is the exclusive right of the husband, although there may be statements of civil law in some countries giving the woman the privilege. But the Quran states that if her husband repudiates her three times, she is divorced and then must wait three months to see if she's pregnant because the child would belong to the father and to keep the identity and the heritage of the child in the father's family, there is a special period before the thing can become final until the, that is declared. Custody of children is another big issue that the Quran makes many statements, but each of the law schools has a slightly different statement. Malachi allows the mother and her family to have rights to her child, but Hanafi says that the children only stay until they're age eight or nine, and then they must be given back to the father. And Hannibal gives all the children from the age of seven up to the father. Uh, under Shafi law, it does have an element saying that a child may choose, but the majority of Quranic law gives the father rights and not the mother. <clears throat> kind of looking at a little summary, you might say, the woman has rights. She has the right to be maintained by her husband, the right to refuse uh, cohabitation if it's been put in the marriage document. She has the right to control her own wealth, the right to be, have equality as a co-wife, the right to visit or receive visits from her family. But if you look at the men's rights, they seem out of proportion to the woman's. He has the right to have four wives, the right to be the head of the house, the right to expect the wife to do everything he said, to control her activities, or to repudiate the marriage. Some Muslims think that by consensus, the modern law makes and can institute reforms, but modern states, since the end of the Muslim Khalifa in 1924, have all become new independent countries and are not actually Islamic states as such. 
and therefore sometimes have new laws or family laws, civil codes like European countries. Some of the reformers agree that cultural and social ideas can be changed, but no religious matters in the Quran could ever be changed. The Quran speaks a lot about the women's dress habits. In Surah 24, it very clearly addresses the men first about modesty and then the women. But it's quite interesting that it never describes the code of dress that is required. It says that they must lower their gaze and they must be modest. Modesty seems to be the principle rather than a description of the law of how the dress should be, how long and or how much of the body has to be covered. The word hijab is interesting because it's used to hide or to conceal. And it was very often used in the early days. It was a curtain. It was a curtain that closed the door where Muhammad's wives were. It came down so other people couldn't see what was happening. And in some sense, the hijab is a covering that comes down so we can't see the woman. And the Quran doesn't give a clear description. But, and it varies from country to country. You will notice that different countries cover the women differently. And it's interesting that one of the major things that must not be seen is the woman's hair. How would you answer questions about, would you wear the hijab if you lived in a Muslim country? You might have to if you were in Iran or parts of Pakistan. You would not be allowed to go out in some villages. What would your friends think if you were veiled? And the question I think that's important to ask is what is modesty? How should a Christian dress? We come back again where Muslim friends, when they come to Christ, will ask, are you allowed to wear anything? Are you allowed to dress this way? Is not the principle very similar to what it said in that verse? We are to be modest. But modesty in all our cultures is defined rather differently. And sometimes, depending whether we're older people or young people, what we consider modest. But certainly the Bible also has some descriptions and statements about how we should dress and how we should wear our jewelry. Are clothes the problem or something deeper? How would we talk about it with our friends? It gives you some ideas of things to think about sharing what you would wear when you have, are visiting your Muslim friends. How would you want them to see you? Quite often my Muslim friends talk about all the people in America as being very immodest. It's partly what they see on television. They're describing all of us in the same manner. And I always remember a friend, my old friend who helped me learn Arabic, Sanida. She worked for an American friend. She was their housekeeper and the nanny to their children. And while she lived there, they spent many hours sharing gospel with her. And she accepted the Lord. And Gloria, who was her the person she worked with, was so surprised. Sanida came the next morning wearing shorts, and lots of makeup, which she had never done before. But she said, I'm a Christian. I want to look like you. And this is how you look, don't you? So I must dress like a Christian. So it does give us concern. We do need to think. Clothes are 
important because they represent our attitudes and our feelings. But also we want to give our friends a true picture of what it is and what they mean.